Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this special issue focusing on multiple myeloma, I first met with Dr. Sagar Loniel to find out what's new and noteworthy in the field, and he began by discussing an agent that was very recently approved by the FDA for treatment of this disease. Garfilzomib is a second-generation proteasome inhibitor, and structurally and functionally, it is slightly different from bortezomib. But the net result really is that it offers us a similar mechanism of action with a different safety profile. And I think that what we've seen from some of the data is that in the 003 clinical trial, there were patients who were resistant or intolerant to bortezomib, who had a response to carfilzomib. And what we've seen in the 004 trial, which is an earlier relapse trial, that in patients who had not been exposed to previous bortezomib, the response rate looks like it's around 51%. And what I think is nice about both of these trials is that there was very little, if any, peripheral neuropathy associated with the administration of carfilzomib. So I think that really represents the wealth of data with the longest follow-up in myeloma. In my mind, what I think it offers for patients on an immediate basis, given the approval, is access to one of the two most active drugs we have in clinical research in myeloma. Carfilzomib and pomalidomide, I think, both fit that bill. And I think it offers patients potentially the ability to receive a proteasome inhibitor without potentially getting some of the side effects or toxicities, particularly if they've had neuropathy from bortezomib before, to continue to receive a proteasome inhibitor without that side effect. Maybe just sort of taking a step back, can you kind of explain what we know about what proteasome inhibitors actually do, how they work? So that's a great question. Proteasome inhibitors basically work by preventing degradation of proteins within the cell. And basically, to simplify it a little bit, proteasomes themselves are the garbage disposals of every cell. And as you recall, the function of a cell is not only to stay alive, but to do so in an ecologically balanced manner, meaning cells don't really waste anything. When they no longer need a protein, that protein then gets recycled through a proteasome from a large bulky protein into individual amino acids. And those amino acids are then used again to build other proteins. Now we know that cancer cells like plasma cells and like myeloma cells, for instance, are particularly dependent on the proteasome to stay alive. And so by blocking proteasome function, that critical pathways for survival is re-regulated or blocked, and that causes cells to panic and die. So maybe you can kind of put in perspective, you know, what we've seen with proteasome inhibitors, specifically bortezomib, and how they've kind of been integrated into the care of myeloma patients. Well, I think what proteasome inhibitors have really done for myeloma is bring a brand new target and concept of treatment for patients with myeloma from the initial phase, newly diagnosed disease, all the way down to relapsed and refractory disease. And what we know about proteasome inhibitors in general is that unlike solid tumors, where once a drug doesn't work, you stop using it, we know that proteasome inhibitors can work by themselves, meaning they can kill malignant plasma cells, but they can also make other drugs better. And specifically, we know they can enhance the efficacy of chemo, 
so melphalan, cytoxan, other drugs along those lines. They can enhance the efficacy of imids, both thalidomide and lenalidomide. When you put a proteasome inhibitor together with either thalidomide or lenalidomide, the activity is more than either drug alone. And in fact, they work together with other novel agents such as heat shock protein inhibitors, HDAC inhibitors, all these other classes seem to be enhanced by having a proteasome inhibitor on board as well. So it has really revolutionized the way we care for myeloma patients. Now, one of the issues with bortezomib is the fact that, from what I understand, it can be used in patients who have renal failure. Mm -hmm. What is the reason that patients with myeloma develop renal failure, and how does that affect the way you use drugs to treat it? So the most common reason for development of renal failure in myeloma patients has to do with hypercalcemia, for instance, and that is typically reversible. And if that's the main cause, then the renal function often returns back to normal. But the problem we run into in a number of myeloma patients is that they make so much light chain. And light chain, you'll recall, is part of the immunoglobulin molecule. There's a heavy chain and two light chains. And that light chain can clog up the kidney tubules and the glomeruli. And when those get clogged, essentially the kidneys don't function anymore. And if renal failure from light chain deposition or light chain nephropathy is caught early enough, then it can be reversed. And the degree to which it reverses depends on how much damage has been done already. 20 years ago, when patients had myeloma and renal failure, all you could do was try and treat the disease and hope that they would get better. Now with aggressive treatment like bortezomib with thalidomide, with dexamethasone, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, all those drugs together, we can reverse renal failure and myeloma almost a third of the time at least, if not more than that. And so the idea of being able to deliver full dose and full intensity therapy with bortezomib is really important because many drugs are metabolized or excreted by the kidneys And in that situation, you have to reduce the dose or give less drug or run the risk of toxicity because of kidney failure. So what about the issue of the method of administration and the schedule of proteasome inhibitors? In bortezomib, initially it was given uh, twice a week and then with some interest in once a week. Now the issue of subcutaneous bortezomib is out there. How do those things factor into practice, and how does that compare to the schedule and method administration of this newer agent, carfilzomib, that's now approved? Bortezomib, as you mentioned, is a a twice-a-week typical schedule. That is day 1, 4, 8, and 11 every 21 days. And there have been a number of trials looking at weekly dosing, typically weekly dosing in combination with melphalan or cyclophosphamide. And in those trials, they demonstrated that the response rates were similar, but there was less neuropathy by dosing on a once a week basis. Now, what we also know is that the subcutaneous route of administration, where it can be given on either the once a week or the twice a week schedule, clearly also reduces the incidence of neuropathy and is a little easier for patients to take. Instead of having to get an IV or a port placed, they can get their drug subcutaneously in the stomach or in the thighs, typically is where that's administered. And so when we look at alternative schedules or alternative doses or routes, 
the main goal is reducing a side effect, and that side effect is neuropathy. Carfilzomib is dosed on a twice-a-week schedule as well, but it's given on consecutive days. So instead of 1, 4, 8, and 11, it's given on 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, 16. So six doses every four weeks, basically, and 24 hours in between those doses. Now, what I think carfilzomib offers, even though it is IV, is the ability to stay at full dose and full schedule throughout the course of a cycle. And remember, we reduced the bortezomib to once a week, not because it was more effective at being given once a week, it's because there was less toxicity. Well, if neuropathy is not an issue, you can go full dose and full schedule for a longer period of time, and hopefully that will result in better depth of response and better durability of response. I think I've been hearing from myeloma investigators like you too that thought over these last few years as these new agents come into practice of trying to figure out ways to treat people for longer periods of time, which of course ties into toxicity. Can you talk about that concept and sort of the overall strategy of myeloma management from that perspective? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It is still a contentious issue in the myeloma community, but I think you hear it enunciated very nicely by Antonio Palumbo and others, and it's the concept that progression-free survival at that first duration of remission is probably the most critical at resulting in long-term disease control. And historically, and Jesus San Miguel and I are writing a review on this right now, historically we've said myeloma is an indolent disease, and because so much of what we do doesn't make a difference, we don't want to hurt patients. That's changed now, and I think it's changed because we have IMIDs and we have proteasome inhibitors that are allowing us to take patients to complete response, flow complete response, molecular complete response, and those are correlated with longer durations of remission. Now, to really finish up on that concept of prolonged therapy, it's dependent on two things. First is, are you actually making the depth of response better? And we're showing now in a number of trials that patients who are on treatment longer are getting to lower levels of residual disease. And two, can that longer therapy be given in a safe and tolerable manner? And that's clearly really one of the most important parts of what we're really trying to do with second and third generation drugs like carfilzomib, because we can't have patients tolerating grade three neuropathy forever. We have to figure out how to change that and how to minimize that. And the whole concept of when a patient is newly diagnosed, they are the most sensitive that their disease will ever be. There's no acquisition of mutations, all those other things that make the treatment harder to deliver. Those are not present at the time of first remission, and that's when you should hammer away at the disease as much as you can. So, you know, we talked about proteasome inhibitors and IMIDs, you know, immune modulatory agents in terms of really changing this disease. Just continuing on with proteasome inhibitors for a minute, in terms of this question of putting a patient on a therapy that they might be able to tolerate for longer times, is also the recent data that's come out, and you're part of presenting that, looking at oral proteasome inhibitors. The one that's furthest along is MLN9708. That's the oral proteasome inhibitor that is a boron-based proteasome inhibitor. So structurally, it's similar to bortezomib. And what we know is that 
there are clearly patients who can respond to the oral proteasome inhibitor and that that oral proteasome inhibitor response can be quite durable. And just as an example, I'll tell you about a patient that I had that was on bortezomib. They were on bortezomib for, I think, five or six cycles, had a great response, but developed grade three peripheral neuropathy and had to come off treatment. Now, when you say grade three, what actually happened with this patient? So she actually had trouble buttoning her shirt, could not write her name very well, had very painful hands, and actually had balance issues because her feet neuropathy was so severe. And how long a time did it take for this to sort of appear? It occurred somewhere around cycle five, so roughly within 15 weeks of initiation of therapy. She went from grade one at the beginning of cycle five to grade three by day 11. It was a pretty rapid change for her. Wow. And incidentally, as long as you're bringing that up, do you see more of a problem with neuropathy and you know, people with diabetes, even if they haven't had neuropathy before, that they tend to get it more? Yeah, I think that there have been a couple of trials that have looked at that, and the data has been sort of conflicted. What I will tell you is that I think patients with a propensity for neuropathy, so diseases like diabetes, they are ones that are more likely to hit it early on. And those patients, actually, you have to be very careful because they can go from grade one to grade three in a matter of days. And so I think that being aware of that, knowing that your guard needs to be a little bit more up on those patients is really important as you've raised. So now this lady was having a problem with neuropathy. What was going on with her disease? Well, she responded nicely initially, but we had to completely stop because of grade three neuropathy. And over the course of about two months, her neuropathy came back down to a minimal grade one with no pain, but her disease started taking off again. That patient we actually enrolled on MLN 9708, the oral proteasome inhibitor, and she's been on now for over a year with good control of her disease and no neuropathy at this time point. That's amazing. It's really like an experiment of one there, huh? Yeah, yeah. And there have been other patients on the 9708 trial that have responded that have not developed significant neuropathy. So I think this concept of You know, I think of the subcutaneous bortezomib as being a way to give a dose over a long period of time because, you know, the AUC is the same. The total dose delivered is the same, but it's given over a longer period of time as opposed to the IV where you get a very high peak and then it comes down. The oral probably acts similar to subcutaneous in terms of that route of absorption. Yeah, that makes total sense. And in terms of reversibility, do most patients, are they reversible like this lady was when you stopped the treatment? I think it really depends on how quickly you intervene. I would say that about three quarters of patients are reversible, but if you don't pay close attention and continue to deliver the drug in the face of grade two or grade three neuropathy, it does become irreversible. Now, getting back to carfilzomib, you were saying that there's a very little neuropathy. Are there any other side effects that are observed? Well, I think side effects like fatigue, nausea, GI stuff, that's always going to be there with any kind of treatment. It's not seen out of proportion to what I would expect. In some patients, there was this dyspnea, shortness of breath that we couldn't really figure out, and it seems to wax and wane on dosing days. But outside of that, it is a remarkably well-tolerated drug. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the dyspnea, because I think there's also, you give extra fluid when you give carfilzomib, and I heard that brought up as maybe tying into the dyspnea. Yeah, early on, there was a concern because when the 2027 dosing was occurring, 
there was a small number of patients that developed renal failure, and it looked almost like a tumor lysis type syndrome. And so patients were added, allopurinol was added to the regimen, a low dose of steroids, four milligrams of dexamethasone was added, and some additional fluids was added to it, and that seemed to completely eliminate this bump in kidney function in the first week of treatment. I think of it more as sort of an inflammatory response as opposed to a tumor lysis type response. I mean, we do give a little fluids with bortezomib quite often as well. So I don't know whether it's the fluid bolus or just an effect of the drug, but in most patients, this dyspnea goes away after the first week. So the other big development, in addition to proteasome myeloma, or as we said, the so-called IMIDs, Maybe you can comment on the two that are out there, thalidomide and lenalidomide, and you mentioned pomalidomide as the third image that's not available yet but showing some promising results. Thalidomide was sort of one of the first drugs that brought myeloma into a modern era, if you will. And it's ironic to say that because thalidomide is probably one of the oldest drugs we've had in cancer treatment for a while. But thalidomide, again, brought a completely new mechanism to myeloma therapy. And a number of patients that were truly steroid and alkylator resistant did respond to thalidomide. The challenge with thalidomide, as many of you all know, is its numerous side effects, even when given in low doses. Neuropathy, somnolence, constipation, all of those things made it really very challenging. And so the second generation imid, lanolidomide, clearly was more potent than thalidomide, had a very different safety profile in that its most common side effects were suppression of the blood counts and thrombosis, and thrombosis appears to be common to all IMIDs, and really did change the AE profile and allow more patients to get lenalidomide longer than we would have seen with thalidomide. And in fact, a number of studies are now looking at lenalidomide maintenance after transplant because it is such a well-tolerated drug. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but first, maybe we can talk about initial, you know, so-called induction treatment, both in younger patients where transplant might be a consideration, as well as older patients. How do you typically think through the decision about what kind of systemic treatment to start up front? Well, I'll tell you our philosophy, and that is that, again, you want to hit the disease as strong as you can in a way that's best tolerated early on in the disease course. And so at our center, for instance, the standard induction regimen is RVD. And RVD is lenalidomide and bortezomib and dexamethasone. And what I think that offers you is the three most powerful and effective antimyeloma drugs given together where you get the most synergy and allows you to get a quick response and a very well-tolerated response for a large number of patients. There are other regimens that I think are considered out there, the so-called Cybor-D regimen using cyclophosphamide with bortezomib. Personally, I like to try and avoid alkylators in a young patient population because this is somebody I'm thinking about being alive 8, 10, 12, 14 years, and the less alkylator I can expose them to, the lower their risk of long-term MDS and leukemia is. And so that's why we favor the Cybor-D regimen. Other regimens like PAD, bortezomib with either adriamycin or liposomal doxorubicin, those are all, I think, reasonable approaches, as is bortezomib with thalidomide and dexamethasone for a younger patient population. 
And for the younger patient, what are your thoughts in terms of transplant? This has been very controversial. There are trials out there randomizing between upfront transplant and delayed transplant. How do you approach that outside a trial setting? I think the idea of avoiding a transplant because our inductions are so good is one that I think had its heyday a few years ago, and that may have been a bit premature. And the reason I say that is we've now seen at least one trial from Antonio Palumbo where everybody got Landex as their induction. They were then randomized to early versus late transplant. The early transplant had a transplant immediately. The late transplant went on to receive melphalan, prednisone, and lenalidomide, or MPR. And what we saw was that the group that got transplant stayed in remission longer. So that while the novel agents clearly add something, and they add something we didn't see before, to say you can use them and eliminate transplant, I think is not necessarily the right way to think about it. To say I'm going to use them and augment that response with a transplant may be more fitting with the way things are moving, at least for most patients with newly diagnosed myeloma. Now, you mentioned the issue of post-transplant maintenance, which particularly has been studied with lenalidomide. What do we know in terms of what that adds in terms of benefit as well as risk? Well, there have been two trials looking at post-transplant maintenance lenalidomide. One was from France and the other was from the United States. Both trials agreed on one point, and that is that the duration of remission for patients who received lenalidomide over placebo was double compared to the group that did not get lenalidomide maintenance. So PFS or progression-free survival, duration of remission, clearly double in the group that got len maintenance. Where they disagree was on survival. And there are a lot of reasons on both sides why there may be a difference in that equation. In the U.S. trial, there was an improvement in overall survival, suggesting that len maintenance, even though there are risks cytopenias, low blood counts, secondary cancers, MDS, all those things were higher in the group that received LEN maintenance. But despite that, there was an improvement in overall survival from the U.S. trial, which to me is a really powerful finding. The French trial did not show that difference, and I think it may be because they didn't do continuous maintenance. They stopped at a certain point, and I think there are a number of other variables in there that might have explained that lack of survival benefit. What's the difference in terms of the dose and schedule when you use lenalidomide maintenance as opposed to when you use, for example, lenalidomide dexamethasone induction? So Landex induction is typically 25 milligrams of lenalidomide with 40 milligrams of weekly dex. The len is given three weeks on, one week off. In the two len maintenance trials, they used either 10 or 15 milligrams of lenalidomide given continuously with no dexamethasone. And I think it's important to note that difference as you brought up because full-dose LEN without DEX in a post-transplant patient is very tough to get in. 25 milligrams after patients have recovered from stem cell transplant with no steroids is a real challenge. What I'll tell you we've adopted at our place, and that is a three-week on, one-week off because we do think there is some value to a little bit of time off lenalidomide. We still use 10 or 15 milligrams, but that week off allows the counts in the marrow to recover a little bit, and we think that helps keep patients on for a longer period of time. 
What about actual quality of life and side effects on lenalidomide maintenance, for example, dermatologic issues? The steroids that are often given with lenalidomide mask the rash-related issues that you raise there. But at the lower dose of lenalidomide, the rash issues are lower. And in fact, patients that have a rash at 25, often what we'll do is go down to 10 or 15 milligrams and the rash goes away. So the idea of a lower dose maintenance, I think, does reduce the incidence of side effects of toxicity. I think in this patient population, it's clear that we have to be aware of two things. One is patient tolerance. That's why Len is better than Thal in terms of a maintenance drug because Thal is tough to tolerate for a long time. And if patients have side effects, we need to make adjustments or stop maintenance because the whole point of maintenance is that they maintain or improve depth of response, but also have a good quality of life. You know, it seems like both in terms of quality of life, side effects, as well as efficacy that lenalidomide was a step up from tholidomide, and it seems to be much more commonly used. What about pomalidomide versus lenalidomide? So pomalidomide is another second or third generation imid, and what we know about POM is that it's more potent than len. And basically what I mean by that is you can overcome len resistance with pomalidomide, just as you could overcome thal resistance with lenalidomide. And we know that in the trials that have been done in patients who are resistant to both lenalidomide and bortezomib, roughly one in three patients will respond to pomalidomide. And in terms of safety profile, it actually looks very much like lenalidomide. The most common side effects are suppression of the blood counts. Thrombosis is an issue, just as it is with every imid, but I think by now we've all learned that some form of prophylaxis can minimize that risk of thrombosis. You talked earlier about what we understand or think we understand about how proteasome inhibitors work. What do we know about imids? It seems a little bit complex. Well, imids historically have been thought to influence eight or nine different things in a myeloma cell, and which of those eight or nine things are really the mechanism of action was unknown. What we know more recently, however, in work from Keith Stewart's lab, as well as from the Japanese, is that there is a putative target for the imids, and that target is cerebron. And cerebron was discovered first in fruit flies, and that's what the Japanese identified. But now we've seen cerebron expression in myeloma cells. And in fact, if you knock cerebron out from myeloma cell lines, they no longer become sensitive to imids. So we now have the putative target. What thalidomide versus lenalidomide versus pomalidomide all due to that putative target differently is not known yet, but we do know there is a target and we're starting to research differences in binding affinity between the imids. And I guess, is there a thought out there that at some point maybe we could do a cerebron level or some kind of assay that would tell us whether or not the patient's going to respond? Yeah, I think that that's certainly really exciting, coming up with a potential biomarker to predict for response to imids. And certainly both response as well as its use in maintenance, I think, would be really very, very important. I think what we don't know yet is why a patient that doesn't respond to thalidomide can respond to lenalidomide. And whether it's just cerebron or whether it's binding affinity, those things we haven't sorted out yet. You know, what I've read about cerebron, they also bring up the mechanism. Of course, we know thalidomide had a teratogenic effect in pregnant women. 
that somehow there's a connection between the cerebellum functioning and the teratogenesis? Absolutely, absolutely. So when you knock cerebellum out, the fruit flies actually don't get those wing defects or birth defects, as it were, which is the fruit fly version that you get with thalidomide or lenalidomide. So it clearly is linked to teratogenesis as well as mechanism of action. Now, you were talking about the emerging thought of trying, you know, assuming it can be done in a tolerable way to get as much of an anti-tumor response as you can at the beginning and this thinking about using both an imid and a proteasome as well as a steroid. What about carfilzomib? What do we know about that up front? Well, there were a number of trials reported on at ASCO this year looking at carfilzomib in newly diagnosed myeloma patients. And the trial with the most mature data is the Andres Jakoboviak trial that was just published in Blood, looking at carfilzomib in combination with Lendex. And what I think he showed very nicely was that the response rate was 100%, again, as we've seen with bortezomib in combination with Lendex. But what he showed was that he could keep patients on for really long periods of time. Almost half the patients achieved a stringent CR within eight cycles of therapy, and that pretty much nobody had to come off because of peripheral neuropathy or have dose reductions. There were two other trials that looked at carfilzomib in the newly diagnosed setting. One was the so-called cyclone trial from the Mayo-Scottsdale people, where they combined carfilzomib with thalidomide and cyclophosphamide. And what they showed, again, was a very high response rate, very well tolerated, and very, I think, interesting regimen. Again, personally, my bias is to stay away from alkylators and to stay away from thal and to favor the less neuropathic lenalidomide, but I think it's certainly an interesting combination in a number of different areas. And the last was the combination of melphalan with carfilzomib and prednisone from the French group, and that again showed very encouraging activity as well. I don't know whether it's going to be possible to get it paid for, but do you think there are going to be people who try to use, now that there are data out there, carfilzomib as part of initial treatment? I think as we get more comfortable with using carfilzomib in the relapsed refractory setting, I think that's inevitable. I think the trials that have been done, again, the most mature data is the Jakoboviak trial where that's been presented and now even published. And so I think that that's clearly a very attractive regimen. I would be curious to see if the upfront use is reimbursed. I think you're right. I think that's going to be a big issue. And again, we do know that bortezomib is a very active drug in the newly diagnosed setting as well. So I think whether you pick carfilzomib or bortezomib is going to depend on a number of factors. Do you fit the FDA label? Because I think obviously we have to try and stay within the FDA label. How flexible are companies going to be with allowing for creep, as it were, with indication use? Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, do you happen to know what the cost of carfilzomib is compared to bortezomib? I actually don't. Yeah, that'll be interesting to try to find out. Just a couple more topics I wanted to throw out to you. Maybe you can comment a little bit. We've talked about imids and proteasome inhibitors and the new agents that are coming out. What about other new agents? And one sort of type of treatment that I think is really interesting that you've had a real leadership role has been monoclonal antibodies, including elituzumab. Mm-hmm. What is that? Elituzumab is an antibody directed against a target on the surface of plasma cells called CS1. And CS1 is present on all plasma cells and is present on a few NK cells as well. 
And what I think is really exciting and interesting is that we've known that plasma cells have unique targets, CD38, CD138, CS1, but never before have we had success in targeting those antibodies yet. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that we're expecting an unconjugated antibody similar to rituximab in the sense that it doesn't have chemo hooked on the back end of it to do work in a state where the immune system may not be able to take advantage of that unconjugated antibody like it can in lymphoma. And so the idea of combining an imid, lenalidomide, with the antibody so that you give the antibody, it coats and binds the target, and then you use an imid to activate the immune system to make that antibody better really is what Lendex elotuzumab is all about. And we've seen lenalidomide make rituximab better in CLL. We've seen lenalidomide make other antibodies better in other hematologic diseases. And I think the Lendex elotuzumab study is another example of an immune modulator enhancing the efficacy of an antibody. And it's very exciting. So the last thing I want to ask you about is bone and myeloma and where we're at right now with bone-targeted agents, as well as local therapy for bone problems in myeloma, which are pretty common. I think bone is an area where we did make a huge amount of progress with the availability of bisphosphonates over 10 years ago. The most recent data on zolindronic acid suggests that patients who get bisphosphonates live longer than patients who don't, regardless of whether or not they have any active bone disease by skeletal survey. And that, I think, has been a real move forward, despite the scare a few years ago of this osteonecrosis issue, which I think has backed off a little bit as we've become a little bit more adept at identifying which patients are at greatest risk for getting ONJ. The new areas, I think, of bone research are with a drug called BHQ, and there is some interesting and exciting data looking at BHQ in smoldering myeloma as well as symptomatic myeloma. And then, of course, the other is the rank ligand inhibitor, denosumab. And that agent, I think we have very early data that suggests we are hitting the target. There is a randomized trial in progress comparing zolandronic acid with denosumab to see whether there are real differences in outcomes. And I think we just have to wait on some of that data. Can you explain a little bit more in terms of what the difference is about how a bisphosphonate like zolandronic acid works as opposed to a rank ligand inhibitor like denosumab? Well, I think there are, as you mentioned, a number of functional differences. The bisphosphonates as a class are very good at preventing osteoclast activity. And remember, osteoclasts are the cells that chew up the bone. What bisphosphonates are not as good at doing is rebuilding bone, so activating osteoblasts to encourage new bone formation. And that has been a major limitation of just using one side of the pendulum, if you will, to try and treat bone disease. What I think the rank ligand inhibitors offer us is that other side of the pendulum, if you were, the ability to hopefully build bone a little bit in addition to preventing destruction of bone. You mentioned, you know, trying to manage or prevent osteonecrosis of the jaw. And one thing that we hear a lot about in different diseases is the issue of preventive dentistry. How important is that, and what do you actually do? Well, I think it's critically important. And, you know, what we do in a situation where there's a newly diagnosed myeloma patient that doesn't have to have bisphosphonates immediately 
because they're not hypercalcemic, for instance, that patient we try and get seen by a dentist before we give them their first dose of bisphosphonates. And in doing that, we try and eliminate any major issues, get dental health improved. If there are teeth that need to be pulled or other things that need to be done in terms of major dental work, we try and get that done and out of the way before we give the first dose of bisphosphonate. If that can't be done, then there's nothing you can do about that. What we then do is tell patients, if you're going to have major dental work and you're on bisphosphonates, let us know in advance so we can either try and do some things to minimize the risk or hold bisphosphonates for a two or three month period before that major dental work is done. And if you can't hold it, if it's a tooth that has to be pulled because there is a significant risk of infection or something else, then what we do is give patients essentially 28 days of oral antibiotics a few days before the procedure and three or four weeks after the procedure. We ask them to use Paradex mouth rinses for a month, again, starting a few days before the procedure, three or four weeks afterwards, and to continue on that kind of an approach until the wound has healed. And the reason that's important is that the problem with ONJ is not just the procedure, but it's infection in the bone before the gum has a chance to heal. And if you can prevent that infection by giving them oral antibiotics and Paradex mouth rinses, then you've probably really minimized the risk of ONJ. Just out of curiosity, I know you have a very active clinical practice. How many cases of ONJ have you seen, say, in the last year? We probably see maybe two to three a year now with, again, sort of the dental hygiene practice that we just talked about. Not a big number. Not a big number. And what about the duration of treatment? In the past, people sort of capped it at two years, and now that's been questioned. What do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, that's a great point. What we in our practice have adopted, and I won't tell you it's the right answer, but what we do is we go monthly for two years and then after that go every three months as long as patients can take that medicine. There is a real push out there saying that patients that are in CR, perhaps you can stop bisphosphonates and then start it again if and when the disease comes back. And the problem I have with that concept is we know that when patients are in CR, they still have minimal residual disease that's active there, and that may continue to chew away at bones. And for that reason, we go to the abbreviated every three-month schedule once patients have had that two years of treatment just to try and maintain some level of bone health over time. But there isn't a huge amount of data saying you should continue or stop or anything beyond two years. How often do you see people with myeloma who don't have bone disease and do you use bisphosphonates in them? So it depends on how you look. If you look with just skeletal surveys alone, probably about 20 or 30% will not have bone disease by that measure. But if you look by MRI, CT scans, PET scans, and skeletal surveys, about 95% of myeloma patients will have some form of bone disease. And based on that concept, we treat everybody with bisphosphonates with the idea that they probably have occult bone disease that we can't pick up with our current modalities. Last thing I wanted to ask you about is smoldering myeloma. Can you explain what that is and how it's managed? So smoldering myeloma was a category first created by Bob Kyle probably about 20 or 30 years ago. And what it represented was, you know there's a plasma cell clone there, but it has not caused any damage. And given that there's been no damage caused, and we don't know what the natural history of an individual patient smoldering is, we have historically elected to watch it. 
Now, what we've learned in the last few years is that not all smoldering myelomas are the same. There is a smoldering myeloma that's just one step away from being real myeloma. And those are patients that can present with kidney failure or with fractures or significant anemia, as opposed to a smoldering myeloma that's going to stay smoldering for the next 10 years and you never have to do anything. And using a risk assessment tool now that includes number of plasma cells in the bone marrow, size of the M protein, and free light chain ratio, we can now break patients into three different categories of smoldering. They can be high-risk smoldering, meaning they will likely become myeloma in the next year. They can be intermediate smoldering, meaning that they can become myeloma in the next three to five years, or low-risk smoldering, meaning at 10 years, half of them will not have developed myeloma. And using that risk-adapted approach, there are trials now looking at the highest-risk smoldering and saying, can we treat them early? And a Spanish trial looked at treating them with Lendex versus observation, that highest-risk group, and showed that their duration of remission was longer and is actually suggesting their survival is better if you treat them earlier. Now, that was a relatively early, small trial. What we're now doing in the U.S. in a trial I'm actually leading through ECOG is randomizing those highest-risk smoldering patients to either LEN alone or observation with a quality-of-life instrument and all sorts of genetics and genomics to go along with it to try and understand, is there a group of patients with high-risk smoldering that benefit from lenalidomide early on versus other patients who may be just as well if you leave them alone. To obtain another perspective on multiple myeloma, I met with Ms. Tiffany Richards. We began our conversation by discussing patient education for these patients, beginning with a newly diagnosed younger patient whose treatment plans includes induction therapy followed by autologous stem cell transplantation. I tell a lot of them that the first year, really, their life is going to be taken up by treating the disease, and that after they get through, you know, the first few months after transplant, that they'll begin to get some of, you know, their life back, but that right now the focus is on their disease and trying to focus on that. I also talk to them about the importance of, you know, obviously if somebody has a lot of back pain, I'm not going to be encouraging them to go out and exercise, but I do counsel them on the importance of exercise and talk to them that actually there was some studies that came out of the University of Arkansas that showed improvement in not only patients functioning in their sleep quality with exercise, but actually patients who were on an exercise regimen collected more stem cells. And so I really try and emphasize the importance of exercise as far as management, and particularly in patients who are receiving dexamethasone, just because we know that the impact that steroids have on muscle strength. I talked to them about the importance of monitoring for neuropathy if they're on a bortezomib-based regimen. And I counsel them that I don't really try and describe it for them because I find that patients, if you say numbness and tingling, but they experience the neuropathy as cold sensation or a burning sensation, then they're just looking for the numbness and tingling and they don't report anything else. And so one of my colleagues actually told me, she's like, I just tell them that if they notice any changes in how their feet and their fingers feel to report that. And so I've actually started doing that. And I think that somewhat puts into perspective for when they need to call because patients are, you tell them one thing to report and that's what they go by. They go exactly by what you tell them to do. 
It seems like in myeloma, the biggest issue in terms of neuropathy has been the proteasome inhibitor bortezomib, as you said. Mm-hmm. And of course, we see neuropathy in all parts of oncology. Is there any, with all kinds of drugs, is there anything particularly typical about the type of neuropathy that is seen with the proteasome inhibitors? With bortezomib, it seems to be that they get more of the burning sensation, whereas with thalidomide, it seems to be more numbness and tangling. And then also the impact, we've had a lot of patients who could just get that real cold sensation to their hands and to their feet. Living in Houston, having patients come into your office when they're wearing gloves in the middle of summer is usually an indication that something is definitely not right. And not a lot of patients get that, but it really seems to be more of the sensory with the burning sensation and then the cold sensation. How much symptomatology does it take to want to start thinking about holding medication? You know, we try to be proactive, and I I must say that since going to subcutaneous bortezomib, we've seen an improvement in that, as well as doing once-weekly bortezomib. We've also seen really a reduction in the amount of neuropathy that we're seeing in patients receiving therapy. It's actually been really quite remarkable, because I remember when I first came how much neuropathy we used to see in our patients, and we've really seen an improvement in that. But my physician is usually pretty cautious, particularly in patients who are newly diagnosed. You know, if they're starting to have some numbness and tingling, we'll kind of watch it. But if it seems like it's a progressive neuropathy, then we'll usually do a dose reduction rather than waiting till somebody has impairment in their activities of daily living or pain. I always tell patients, you know, I can't stand it when my hands or fingers fall asleep on me, let alone having that all the time. So numbness and tingling can be annoying and disabling, and it doesn't necessarily have to interfere with function. So you mentioned the use of subcutaneous bortezomib and weekly bortezomib. I guess from what we've seen, it looks like it works just as well. How often are you utilizing those strategies? We've gone to subcutaneous bortezomib with the two physicians I work with almost exclusively now. We have actually gone back to more of using days 1, 4, 8, and 11 schedule rather than doing the once weekly just because we've seen such an improvement and generally reserve the once weekly bortezomib in patients who maybe already have some neuropathy from diabetes or if they're relapsed refractory and they've had prior bortezomib exposure that caused neuropathy. Now, there's another proteasome inhibitor out there, carfilzomib, that's been studied. I know you've been involved with trials of this agent. What do we know about that compared to bortezomib? There's really a lot less. There's virtually no neuropathy with that. I think the percentage is about 3 to 4%, but I know are not really seeing any at all. So that's really encouraging. Any other side effects or toxicities with carfilzomib that you know may be different? You know, they have to get the fluid bolus prior to getting the carfilzomib because of the renal insufficiency that can occur. But there has been a study that I think recently was published that showed its efficacy in patients who are in renal failure. But they do have to be monitored a little bit more closely as far as their creatinine, particularly when they're first being dosed. I've heard that maybe some patients are short of breath or dyspneic, and maybe it's related to the fluid. Have you seen this? We've seen some of that. I think at other centers, they're seeing that as well. I don't think anybody's really sure of what the mechanism of action of that. I know one of my colleagues was saying that they thought maybe it could be a cytokine reaction maybe, but there's not really a lot of information as far as what's going on with the dyspnea. 
getting back to the patient who's being considered for transplant, the younger patient, what's the usual approach in terms of an induction treatment for them? Either using bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone or bortezomib cyclophosphamide dexamethasone. The main thing with those patients is you want to avoid using melphalan just because of the difficulty collecting stem cells. So the key important feature with that is to avoid the melphalan-based regimens. And in terms of the, you know, lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, the RVD regimen, other than the issues about potential neuropathy, what are some of the other sort of side effects, toxicity issues that you have to consider? One of the main considerations is the risk for thromboembolic complications. And so if they're on once-weekly dexamethasone, then generally an aspirin daily is appropriate and is enough to help with anticoagulation. In patients, though, who are on maybe a more high-intensive dose of dexamethasone due to their renal impairment, or if they have other comorbidities that would place them at risk for a thromboembolic event, then using a low-molecular weight heparin at a lower dose or warfarin would be indicated. Now, you know, a lot of people now are using one of these combination approaches prior to transplant. As the patient gets closer to having the transplant itself, what do you advise them in terms of what to expect? I tell them a lot of our patients actually do their transplant outpatient, unless if they have renal failure or some other indication that they need to be admitted inpatient. But a lot of times they actually are managed completely outpatient. And so they have to stay in Houston within like 30 minutes of our center for their transplant. But I tell them that for the first six weeks, you're going to have a lot of fatigue that, you know, until your counts come back up, that the risk of infection and to really be monitoring that, making sure that you're not having people come in and visit you who are sick or who've been around other people that are sick and to avoid going into large crowds, not going to church and things like that. But also just the importance to take care of themselves and making sure they're getting enough rest, but not to be laying in bed all day long either, that they need to get up and be doing some sort of exercise at least once a day. When I worked in Wisconsin on the transplant unit, we actually had like a little exercise room that patients had to go to every day. And I don't think they have that here in their inpatient unit, but I thought that was really kind of a cool thing because it really emphasized to the patient how important getting up and being active is during the transplant process. And then also the importance of exercise to help prevent pneumonia, that they need to be exercising their lungs to help prevent any kind of infection that may develop. Any other major toxicities that patients usually go through? What about mucositis and GI toxicity? Yeah, I talked to them about that as far as not letting that go and ignoring it, that if they start to have any mouth pain or if they notice even just a small sore, that they need to report that to the clinic. And then also same with diarrhea, that, you know, if they're having one or two loose stools a day, that's okay. But if they're starting to have more, that they shouldn't ignore it. Because I think a lot of times patients tend to not emphasize things as much as they should. They kind of say, okay, well, it's just a little diarrhea and I'm good and ignore it, not realizing that the earlier you prevent something, the better off it's going to be. And so those are usually the things I try and emphasize with our patients, as well as obviously if they're getting an allo transplant, I don't want them to be taking modium because we obviously have to make sure we know if they're having graft-versus-host disease. But as far as with an auto, I usually tell them that they can take modium. Can you just take a step back and explain what an auto transplant is compared to an allo and what graft-versus-host disease is? 
Okay. An autologous stem cell transplant uses stem cells from the person, whereas an allogeneic transplant are stem cells that come from another individual. Generally, it's going to be a matched sibling, but occasionally they'll do it from a donor that's outside of the family. I guess we should also point out, I mean, I think most people are aware of this, that what's therapeutic is not the actual transplant, but rather the high-dose chemo that's given. Right. The melphalan is actually what's the therapy and the transplant part of it is just to help rescue the bone marrow from the chemotherapy. And what is graft-versus-host disease? Graft-versus-host disease occurs when the cells from the other person begin to attack the tissue of the host. So generally, we'll see that it can be of the skin, it can be of the gut, and really can attack any of the other cells that the donor cells do not recognize. And in what situations do you see people actually going for aloe transplant? Generally, we don't send our patients for an allogeneic unless they have a bad sided genetic, like if they have translocation of 414 or translocation 1416, and they don't seem to be really responding well to treatment. And those are the generally the patients. We really try to avoid doing an allogeneic transplant in patients with myeloma just because the data thus far has not really shown an improvement in overall survival compared to auto. So you mentioned, you know, adverse cytogenetic factors. Can you talk a little bit more about how you approach that? So we look at the FISH panel, which is a more sensitive way of looking at the chromosomes within the patient's myeloma cells, as well as conventional cytogenetics. And so we're looking for a couple of things. We're looking for if they have translocation of 414, translocation 1416, deletion of 17P, or deletion of chromosome 13 within the fish as well as conventional cytogenetics. And typically these patients have a worse prognosis than those who have a normal cytogenetic makeup. Another thing that's sort of happened over the last couple years, at least that I've observed that I find very interesting, is in these patients who are getting transplanted, I guess now there's a consideration to use some type of maintenance treatment after the transplant. Can you sort of talk about what the thinking is there and what's currently being done? Lenalidomide maintenance comes out of two studies, one that was conducted here in the United States and then one that was conducted in France. And both the studies were lenalidomide was given after transplant once a month for 21 to 28 days, depending on the study. And both trials showed improvement in progression-free survival. And then thus far, the study conducted in the United States has shown a slight improvement in overall survival, although the one conducted in France hasn't shown the same benefit. And so currently, the thinking is to place patients on maintenance therapy with lenalidomide. And that improvement in progression-free survival has been shown across all subgroups, regardless of their remission status. And when a patient's being counseled concerning the possibility of getting post-transplant maintenance, what are some of the patient education issues that you go through? I talk to them about management of diarrhea and constipation, particularly diarrhea, because it seems to me that patients tend to develop more diarrhea over the course of time. And so, you know, that they can take Imodium for their diarrhea. Some patients do get constipation. And so with those patients, I counsel them to try taking Miralax because Miralax seems to work well for that. 
Also, the risk of secondary malignancies is important because the studies are showing that there is an increased risk, although it's small. We still need to let them know about that potential risk and whether that is a real risk or if those are malignancies that would have occurred anyways is still unknown. But those are really the main things, as well as monitoring of their blood counts, particularly their white cell count and platelet count. And so at our center, we have them come in once a week for the first two months. And if their counts do okay, then we take them just to once a month blood counts checks. And how do you approach the patient who, in spite of having induction treatment, a transplant and maintenance, then develops a relapse? One of the things that we look at is how long their remission lasted after transplant. So if you have a patient who was in remission for a long period of time, four or five years, then we may talk to those patients about doing a second transplant, just because we know that the second transplant generally lasts about half as long. And so even if it lasts two years, that's two years that they don't have to really take heavy chemotherapy. If their remission duration was less than two years, then we talk to them about any clinical trials we would have open, or we may consider going back to their induction regimen that they had previously. So if they had lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone as induction therapy and they had a good response, we may consider that again, or trying to get them to go on to a clinical trial. When you look out over the new agents that are being looked at in myeloma, what are the ones that you are most excited about? I'm excited about pomalidomide just because we're seeing activity in patients who are refractory to lenalidomide and bortezomib with responses of about 30 to 40%. And I think the patients that we need the drugs for are those who are refractory to what we currently have available. And so that really is a huge need for our patients. Carfilzomib I'm excited about just because we don't have to worry as much about the peripheral neuropathy as we do with bortezomib although it does require more frequent visits. So in patients who have a work schedule that they need to be at work every day, that might be a little bit problematic for those patients with the dosing schedule, just because it, you know, it's days one, two, eight, nine, and 15 and 16. So that requires them to be coming to the clinic more often. And so those I'm excited about. And then ilituzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody, also seems to be promising as well. So that's another drug that I'm excited to see. Let's talk a little bit about the older patient, particularly the 75-year-old plus, which there's a lot of patients Mm -hmm. in myeloma who fit into that category. How do you think of through their initial therapy? One of the things that even in a 75-year-old, we always look to see if they're a transplant candidate or not, because you can have some really amazing 75-year-olds that are probably fitter than even I am. (laughs) And so that's one of the things that we do take into consideration at our center. Obviously, that's not going to be the view of everybody in the country, particularly out in the community. But that's one thing we do look at. If they are not a transplant candidate, we generally do a mephalin-based regimen, either with lenalidomide or bortezomib. 
I find that we generally go with bortezomib, mefalin, and prednisone just because with most of the patients having Medicare, if they don't have a good supplemental insurance, they don't have the copay with bortezomib that they would with lenalidomide. And so while we don't want to use cost as a way to determine treatment, it's the reality for a lot of our patients. And what we don't want to do is make them bankrupt by treating their cancer. How much do you add in terms of toxicity by bringing in the melphalan? It has more of an effect on their blood counts. And then obviously with melphalan, there is the risk of secondary leukemias or myelodysplastic syndrome with the melphalan. So that is an added risk. Depending on the performance status of the patient, and some of these patients, we may just use bortezomib dexamethasone with them. And a lot of them do really well with just bortezomib and dexamethasone, or if they do have good insurance, lenalidomide dexamethasone. What about the dose of medications in older patients, particularly when, when people getting up over the age of 80? How do you, do you decrease the dose of any of these agents up front, or do you wait and see if they have problems? We generally, if there seem to be like a good 80 or, you know, a good 75 or depending on what their age, then we keep it at the usual dose. So we really look at the patient and make it patient dependent rather than saying, okay, because you're 80, we're going to automatically reduce the dose. And what we find is a lot of patients do tolerate the regular doses of the chemotherapy drugs. And what about the duration of treatment in older patients? Is there a point at which you just stop and observe them after treatment, or do you keep them going indefinitely? Generally, what we do is when we see their proteins plateau out, then we start to back off, and we usually back off one drug at a time. So let's say they're on bortezomib with dexamethasone the day of and the day after, then we would back off on the dexamethasone to see if we can maintain them on bortezomib alone. And then if their proteins stay stable, then we would back off to maybe just days one and eight and see how they do. In the case of lenalidomide and dexamethasone, we may back off on the dexamethasone, see how they do with lenalidomide alone, and then gradually cut back on the dose and see how their proteins do. What about the patient who has renal dysfunction? First of all, why do you get renal dysfunction and myeloma? And how do you approach the patient who has that? The renal dysfunction and myeloma occurs because the Benz-Jones or the light chains of the immunoglobulins obstruct the renal tubules within the kidneys. And so that's the reason why we see the kidney failure. In patients with renal failure, we usually use a bortezomib dexamethasone or maybe bortezomib cyclophosphamide dexamethasone just because with the lenalidomide, you would have to dose reduce the lenalidomide for the renal failure. And then if they're going to require anticoagulation and you're using a low molecular weight heparin, then you have to take that into consideration just because with warfarin does interact with dexamethasone. And so it kind of, it makes it difficult to control the INRs when you have a drug that you're not taking continuously. Both the physicians I work with and patients with renal failure will pulse, do high dose dexamethasone for the first month to try and get the disease under good control and then back off on the dexamethasone. You know, the data from the ECOG study showed the benefit with the once weekly dexamethasone, but in patients who you're trying to save them from going on to dialysis, the quicker you can get them into a remission, the better that their kidneys are going to do. So we generally use pulse dexamethasone in those patients. 
So do you usually see that the renal function improves with myeloma treatment or is it usually not reversible? The majority of the time it's reversible. It somewhat depends on how long that renal impairment's been there. We've had patients who are on dialysis and have been able to come off dialysis just because their disease was picked up pretty quickly. And so we do see improvements in patients. What about the issue of bone in multiple myeloma? How do you approach, first of all, the use of bone-targeted treatment or bisphosphonates? So we generally use either pomidronate or zolindronic acid as part of the therapy. The key thing with the bisphosphonates is making sure that you have a dental evaluation prior to initiating them, just because of the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw. And so you really want to ensure that patients have good dentition and that they don't require any dental extractions or anything like that. If they do require a dental extraction, then we need to have that taken care of and then wait about two to three months before starting the bisphosphonate therapy. There was a study that was done in the UK that showed an improvement in overall survival of about five months in patients who receive zolindronic acid versus an oral bisphosphonate. And so the thinking is that, particularly in patients with bone disease, to start them on bisphosphonate once a month with either zolindronic acid or pomidronate, obviously monitoring to ensure that they're not having any dental problems and that they know that they have to keep on top of their dental hygiene and make sure that they're going to see their dentist and things like that, but also to monitor their kidney function while they're receiving the bisphosphonates. Now, it used to be said that usually you would stop the bisphosphonate after two years. Is that still the case? That's a really good question. (laughs) You know, originally the ASCO guidelines said two years, but with the study that came out from the UK, patients were on it indefinitely. And so um, I know we were actually talking about this with a patient last week as far as how long are we going to do the bisphosphonates. And I think probably depending on who you ask, you would get a different answer just because the bisphosphonate guidelines have not been updated since this recent study. At this point in time, we're still doing two years and then stopping, but that may change. The other thing, and I think they just presented these data from that UK trial you were talking about, is it looked like, I guess, the level of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which I guess is the biggest problem potentially with these agents, it seemed like after a couple of years, it sort of plateaued out mm-hmm. and didn't seem to go up that much. Yeah, The key with the osteonecrosis is just making sure that patients are educated and that you get them in to see their dentist. And we will not start anybody on a bisphosphonate until after they've seen a dentist and they've had a dental evaluation, which that can be problematic for some patients. Dental work is very, very expensive. And most patients don't, even if they do have dental insurance, it only covers like 50% of the cost of dental work. And dental work is very expensive. I know I've had to have some crowns placed. And I mean, and I was like, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. I have to pay what? (laughs) And I have some insurance and I have a good job. So I can't even imagine for somebody who's living on social security and to try and get into a dental clinic at a dental school, there's a long waiting list for that. So I think the dental coverage in the U.S. is lacking for many patients. Another thing that's come out about bisphosphonates out of that study you were talking about is the question 
of whether they should be given, not everybody with myeloma has bone disease, and whether or not they should be used in those patients. How's uh, MD Anderson approach that? One of the doctors I work with talks to patients about the data and tells them what the benefit is and really has a discussion. And sometimes patients will be like, you know, if they don't have the bone disease, they'll say, no, I don't want to take it. And other patients are like, well, I'll take it because if it gives me five months, it gives me five months. And so we really try to include the patient in the discussion about it. What about the issue of local treatment of bone disease and particularly in the vertebrae and particularly so-called kyphoplasty? What is that? And how do you generally, what kinds of problems and issues do you run into with bone and myeloma? You know, we'll do radiation therapy if the patient has cord compression. We'll do obviously do radiation. And then also if they have a lytic lesion that's placing the bone at risk for fracture, we'll do radiation. Sometimes we'll send them to orthopedics to see what they think of where the lesion is and if they think that surgical intervention is necessary. We try to avoid that just because we want to get them started on therapy and get that taken care of. And so usually we'll do the radiation to try and help to stabilize out that bone a little bit. I mean, obviously sometimes, you know, the bone does fracture, but we do what we can to try and minimize that. As far as in the spine with vertebral body compression fractures, we can use kyphoplasty or vertebroplasty to help manage the pain. Kyphoplasty involves placing a balloon TAM into the vertebral body and then inflating that balloon and then injecting cement into the area. And in these patients who receive kyphoplasty, they have an improvement in their pain. And I'd say probably about 90% of our patients have an improvement in their pain scores after kyphoplasty. And then they do get some restoration of vertebral body height, which is important because if we can try and give them back some of their vertebral body height, then you are able to minimize the kyphosis that patients get from the vertebral body fractures. So the last thing I want to ask you about is kind of going back to the beginning, and I'm just kind of curious how you counsel patients nowadays with newly diagnosed myeloma in terms of the treatability or even, quote, curability of the disease. You know, we generally don't talk to patients about that. We still tell them that it's an incurable disease just because the percentage of patients that you could technically define as being cured are so small. I mean, it's like about maybe about five. At our center, when we looked at it, it was about 5% of patients. And so we don't really use that word because for the majority of the patients, they're not going to get a cure. What we do tell patients is that what the statistics are, we tell them that the median survival is five to seven years if they have normal cytogenetics. Obviously, if they have some of the high-risk cytogenetics, we tell them that their median survival is less. But for patients with standard-risk cytogenetics, I always tell them, because a lot of times they focus on those numbers, and I tell them those are just numbers that are taken from studies, that you are your own person, and that nobody can really tell you how long you're going to live. And that, yes, you have this new diagnosis and you probably feel like you've been hit by a car because of it, but not to focus on the numbers and to enjoy every day. And I really try and put things into perspective for them. You know, we've had patients who were diagnosed with myeloma 12 years ago and their husband died during that time period or a family member died during that time period and it was unexpected. And so... I try to put things into somewhat of a perspective for them so that they don't get focused on the fact of, oh my gosh, I have cancer, I'm going to die. 
And so I find that that usually helps somewhat. I mean, they're still scared and they're still have the deer and headlight look, but I find that it somewhat eases it so that they're not so focused on those numbers. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Nursing Update.